Okay, I'll dismiss uh, little ones up to the nursery this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12 today. I will be re-engaging our series through the book of Samuel next Sunday, but um, I wanted to provide a bit of a teaching on 1 Corinthians 12 into a bit of chapter 13, and I'm going to kind of provide an overview of that and then kind of circle back and explain why I felt I wanted to speak to that uh, this Sunday. So 1 Corinthians 12 occurs in the midst of a book uh, that's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in Corinth, and it's a few decades after Jesus' resurrection. And this church is kind of a mash of Jew and Gentile and different social classes and ethnic backgrounds, and they're all believers in Jesus, but they're really stumbling to figure out how does this all come together? How, how is it, what does it mean to be the church? What is it supposed to look like? And there are divisions in the church and there's arguments and you know that because Paul addresses a lot of them through many of the chapters. It's really clear that different priorities are vying for attention and people have lost their way and they need instruction on a lot of issues. Some basic issues like how to organize a gathering of God's people when you come together to worship or what is the vision for Christian marriage and sexuality or what do we do when there are... Christians in the same church bringing lawsuits against each other? Do, does the way of Jesus teach us anything about how we navigate that kind of conflict? What does spiritual leadership in the church look like? And it looks like, from what they can tell, that there are different giftings and talents within the body of Christ. And what does that mean in terms of do certain people get preferential treatment? Should we honor certain people above others? What, what's kind of the hierarchy of power and leadership and how is it connected to particular spiritual gifts especially ones that might strike us as more like have more of a wow factor gifts where you can speak in different tongues and different languages and perform miracles and it's in chapter 12 that paul uses if you're a part of the church or you've been a part of the church for a while a very familiar metaphor but it's very very powerful to explain to the corinthian church who they are and to reframe how they are to view each other in their collective uh, mission. So beginning in verse 12, Paul says, just as, just as a body, although it's one thing, it has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And he says, for we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. So he's saying you are in the body of Christ. When you are baptized, when you place your faith in Jesus, you become part of Jesus' body here on earth. And he says that you were baptized by one Spirit to form one body. And it didn't matter whether you were Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We were all given the one Spirit to drink. God gave equally to all. So, the body is, made not, sorry, is not made up of one part, but of many. Then in the next section, Paul is confronting those who because of their background, maybe they were Gentile, they weren't Jewish, or they didn't know a lot about like God's story in the Bible, and they were kind of, kind of coming late to the party, they had placed their faith in Jesus, or maybe, again, because they were ethnically Gentile, they were tempted to see themselves, or they were treated as second-class citizens within the new people of God. Maybe they um, were of a lower social status maybe they were a servant or a slave to someone and but basically he addresses those who think well because of this 
I'm kind of lesser. Like I'm inferior to other people in the church. So maybe I really kind of don't belong. Like I'm sort of used to being marginalized and excluded in my life and in the world. And it seems like that pattern's kind of replicating itself in the church. So maybe I should just kind of stay. Maybe I'm not real. I don't really count. And Paul speaks to those hearts and he says in verse 15, if a foot should say, oh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if an ear would say, oh, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong in the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the, sen- um, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, but one body. So He just addressed those who feel inferior and not fit to be a part of the church. And now He turns to those who say, well, maybe they wouldn't say it, but their actions reveal that they think they're superior to other people in the church. And they're like, The church needs me, but I don't really need the church. I don't need other Christians. And they see themselves as um, being able to live into a life of kind of kingdom independence and autonomy. And he warns them. He says, listen, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Paul says, some of you look at other people in your church, and again, you might not say it out loud, but you kind of take stock and say these are the people who are indispensable, like they're important, and there's other people who, whether they showed up or not, or whether they were a part of our fellowship, like honestly, like it wouldn't matter because they don't bring a lot to the table. And he's, he's, he's fighting this, and he says, no, no, no. The parts that are unpresentable, that are weaker, that, that seem to be dispensable, he goes, God actually, we actually treat those parts of our body with special modesty. They're given special honor. While the presentable parts actually don't need special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body and so that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Right? That's important, right? We have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And now Paul drives this point home that everyone has a necessary place. And we have to guard against thinking that we're not enough, not good enough to be a part of the church, or there's some kind of disqualifying aspect to who we are, or to think that we're above kind of forming and being a part of Christian community with those kinds of people. And he says, you are the body of Christ. That's not a singular you, that's a plural. You all. And each one of you is a part of it. He doesn't say you should be a part. Like, you are a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles and then prophets and teachers and miracles and healing and helping and guidance and different kinds of tongues. And then he says, is everybody an apostle? Is everybody a miracle worker? Is everybody a prophet? Does everybody interpret? Verse 31, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. 
And so this most excellent way as he moves into chapter 13 is the pursuit of God's love expressed between one another. Now think about what he's just highlighted. He's like, God has given some pretty noticeable and amazing gifts to some people within this church context in Corinth. Apostles and miracle workers and those who can speak different languages to connect the Gospel to maybe visitors or tourists in in Corinth. Healing. That's amazing. And then he says, yeah, God has done that. That's awesome. But I'm going to show you a better way. And it's actually a way that everybody can step into. He says, if I were to speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I didn't have love, then I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and could fathom all mysteries, have all knowledge, and if I had faith that could move mountains, but I didn't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but I don't have love, I actually gain nothing. And then he explains what this kind of love is. He says it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor other people, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And it always protects, and it always trusts, and it always hopes, and it always perseveres. And it doesn't fail. It doesn't give up. Pause, hold that there, hold all of that kind of scriptural momentum, and then I want to explain what has brought me into this this morning. So by temperament, I love goals and plans and exciting things, and I'm future-focused, and I'm aspirational. That's part of my makeup. I'm idealistic. And so it's very easy for me, especially moving towards Easter and then after, to lean into themes of post-resurrection hope and power and hope-fueled optimism. It was very natural to me. But what I noticed moving towards Easter and then even after Easter, that I have had a difficult time trying to access that same energy. And what I thought would happen, certainly in early March, was, okay, masks, gone, pandemic feels like it's waning, Spring is coming, weather's better, sun's shining. And what I thought was I was going to notice a very steady increase in the intensity of positive mood shift. That usually happens this time of year. I don't get sort of seasonal affective disorder from the winter, but I definitely get sort of a depressed energy level. And then when the sun comes out, it's like, oh yeah, now I'm feeling a little bit more alive. But I noticed my overall mood hasn't changed that much. And I've been, you know, been aware as I've moved through certain days, especially beautiful days like we had yesterday, that I just keep finding myself saying, why do I feel so tired and sad? And just trying to shake myself out of it. I anticipated feeling hopeful and rested and enthusiastic. Um, but that energy burst, that swell that comes in the spring just hasn't sort of kicked in. And I was just doing some research and reading around this. And, you know, I think what I'm experiencing is what, you know, some psychologists call like the letdown effect. So the letdown effect is a psychological phenomenon. I'm sure you've all experienced it. As I talk about it, you're going to connect those dots. 
but it addresses the question, how come sometimes I feel worse or bad after a period of acute pressure or stress? Like you think you'd feel the worst in the acute pressure or stress. How come the bottom seems to fall out after? And part of that is because when we are under stress, you've got these spikes in cortisol and norepinephrine and adrenaline and when stress goes down, our immune system, if it's, if it's been stressed for a long period of time, can actually become compromised and relaxed and can't be as vigilant. And this is the phenomenon where maybe there's been a short period of time where we've had to knuckle down. You know, I certainly remember my wife at certain points in the pandemic when COVID was going around, she would just get up and say, I cannot afford to get COVID. I am just not getting COVID. This month, this, I just can't do it. You will yourself into getting things done but then when the pressure is off, then things hit you. Then the fatigue sets in. Then the illness comes. And our ability to hold back that letdown, that, um, that release of our bodies and our minds comes to an end. And again, it's during this time that we can often experience a physical crash or an emotional crash or a psychological or spiritual crash. And one of the patterns that I'm trying to track in my own life and in the life of our church and in the life of other churches is I think something similar is happening across our churches and within our sort of collective gathering spaces as churches. There's kind of a letdown effect happening. And I say that because as I've talked to other pastors cross-denominationally and counselors and therapists and read articles, what's really interesting is they mentioned over the last like even two months, 60 days, it's anecdotal, but they've said, I seem to have noticed an uptick in erratic behavior, in crashing behavior, in people moving into self-destructive behavior, even stuff that was being held at bay during the height of the pandemic. But now, people are leaning into or succumbing to really uh, uncharacteristic behavior, even deeper uh, conflict and fraction among people, for example. And so I've been sort of asking myself at this social level, at our church level, at the personal level, are we experiencing this letdown? And it would make sense if we were because uh, when you experience prolonged stress coming out of or mixed with or as a result of prolonged trauma, the toll is really enormous, not just on our bodies, but on our collective political body, on our collective congregational body and social and relational networks, there is this pervasive stress on and under and around the system that is just like a pressure cooker, and that weakens and compromises our ability to adapt and respond in ways that are healthy. And obviously you can see how when that continues for a month, over a month, over a year, over a year, it's, you don't have the margin to catch your breath, restore, and then come back into the fight. You're, you're sort of feeling like every month is a degradation, is a weakening of your resiliency. And we've experienced a lot of stress and disappointment and sadness. And I would argue uh, for many of us, trauma over the last few years. And that's not just dealing with the pandemic, but it's dealing with your own lives, our collective lives and experiences and all the uncertainty and challenges that were unique to people, but then crossed relational networks. And then the pandemic kind of amplified it because it disrupted our normal ability to lean into rhythms that had served us well. 
patterns of connection and community and care. Now, some might be uneasy that I use the word trauma, especially in light of the fact that when you think, I mean, my mind immediately goes to Ukraine, and you're like, that is the experience of, that, that's capital T trauma. And, and the, you know, I know almost all of us would say, I haven't experienced anything that would kind of touch that level of pain and hardship and trauma. And we can hold that in tension with the fact that what we've experienced, many of us, is still traumatic because it's been this ongoing presenting pressure and disappointment and stress that has hit multiple points that we haven't been able to get out from under on. And, and that's one of, the, um, one of the, the points of trauma is that you're in a situation that you're really powerless to control and you feel like life is happening to you. The Center for Addiction and Mental Health defines trauma this way. Trauma is the lasting emotional response that often results from living through a distressing event. Experiencing a traumatic event can harm a person's sense of safety, self, their ability to regulate emotions, navigate relationships. And long after the traumatic event occurs, people with trauma can often feel shame, they can feel helpless, powerless, and be haunted by an intense fear. Nearing the end of 2020, that date is important. That was not quite a year of the pandemic. So nearing the end of 2020, Dr. Elizabeth Pennock, who's the assistant professor of counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary, she identified within just her denomination in the States, already in 2020, so it's been about 10 months at that point, indicators of collective trauma among churches, among gathered Christians. And she said there are kind of four major markers that define collective trauma. And she was noticing them already in 2020. The experience of a profound sense of a loss of safety. The experience of a lost sense of connection. The experience of a sense, lost sense of agency. And the experience of a lost sense of hope. So loss around safety, connection, agency, and hope. And she was seeing this play out among churches. That was one year into the pandemic. She hasn't written a follow-up article about year two. Now, she says this is how prolonged trauma stress or stress that you can't get out from under that is hitting you on multiple levels. This is what it sort of builds in to the neural framework, to our bodies, because our bodies respond to this incubator of helplessness and uncertainty. And pastorally, what I've been trying to understand is the importance of naming that experience for people. Because I have been surprised at how quickly I've wanted to with the nice weather, um, sunshine, it's spring, the calendar turns over, and I want to say, whew, the worst of things is over. We're kind of not great, but we're good now, and now we're going to sort of experience this progress, this momentum. And man, I think that's not going to happen, maybe in the way that someone like me is imagining it. Certainly not happening in my, in my own self, and I don't think it's happening within our church and within our community and within the world. It's been a remarkably stressful time. 
And I thought about that. What, what stuck out to me in, in Paul's metaphor of the body is this profound recognition that I came back to in verse 26. If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. That even the body of Christ holds a kind of collective trauma. We're not, even if we'd like to think we are, we're not independent and autonomous so much that even the people that are gathered here, if one or two people are going through something very difficult, that it somehow doesn't affect us. The church is like a family system. And some of the rumblings when the system shifts over here aren't immediately obvious over here. But when there is um, tremendous disruption across a number of networks and relationships, it's very destabilizing. And we all suffer. Now, that doesn't mean that our experience through the pandemic has been the same. It obviously hasn't. But I want to sensitize us to the idea that we have all moved through Uh, one of the most demanding time periods uh, of our lives so far. Especially for our church. Certainly during my time here. The uh, the end of this week, April 29th, I'll be here for seven years. In the last two years, by a massive margin, are more challenging than those first five times three to the power of infinity. And um, as we've experienced that suffering, and as we're coming out of it, And as maybe we're feeling that letdown, disappointment in ourselves that we're not feeling better, more optimistic, disappointed in other people. There's not the energy that we think there should be or that we want to be. I I name these things so that we can really move into the next few months, maybe the next year, with a real posture of grace and care towards one another. The top stressors in anyone's life at any period of time, the top four stressors that especially when chronic are massively damaging to the ecosystem of the human personhood are financial stress, job stress, in terms of like, are you going to keep your job and how's your job changing, personal health stress, and dealing with difficult relationships. By a show of hands, I won't ask for details, How many people would say, I absolutely experienced ongoing stressors for the last two years in one of those areas, just by show of hands? And then keep your hand up if it's two. And then keep your hand up if it's three. And then keep your hand up if it's four. That is a significant amount of chronic, meaning unstopping, or maybe one reprieves for a bit, maybe the financial thing reprieves for a bit, but then the health comes to the foreground. But they're always in play. And even one of these things can wreak havoc on our bodies. What I'm going to list you is the kinds of fatigues that can come from carrying one of those stressors for a prolonged period of time. Physical fatigue, social fatigue, um, anxiety fatigue, compassion fatigue, uh, emotional fatigue, ambition, sensory. These are all kinds of fatigues that, that can pull and gnaw at us. Feeling run down physically, too much time with draining people socially. Anxiety, feeling that our, we can't get the chatter and the... Um, 
the, the busyness out of our, our, out of our brains, and, and we feel caught in catastrophizing worst-case scenarios across different relationships in our life. Compassion fatigue. We, we are trying to support others, but we don't know how to take time for ourselves. And after a while, other people's problems, we wouldn't say it to them, but what we feel is, I, I have no margins to care about this. Like, I'll put, in a, I'll put in a brave face, I'll kind of go through the motions of saying, I love you, I care for you, but you're like, you're, I'm dead inside. Like, I feel I have no capacity to love and care for you. Emotional fatigue, just these swells of emotion that we're not used to. Ambition fatigue, we're hardening ourselves. Why, why do I feel this way? I, I shouldn't feel this way. This is not that bad. You know, people in Ukraine have it worse than I do. I should be happy. I should be grateful for stuff. And you just grind on yourself and you're hard on yourself. And that can fatigue you. And then sensory fatigue, you just feel overstimulated. You feel frenzied. You feel unfocused. These one of those previous stressors, one of those stressors is enough to set you off on multiple layers of fatigue here. Now again, think about that in the context of how many people said, yep, one stressor, oh, actually two, actually three or four. Then think about the network of relationships and then think about the, um, the layers of fatigue that could be affecting anybody in this room at any given point as they walk in on Sunday, as you see them in the store, and then what happens when you stay in that fatigue is that it affects every single system in your body, like physically it does. Your adrenal system, reproductive system, um, respiratory system, gastrointestinal, musculoskeletal, cardiovascular, everything is affected. Everything is weakened and compromised to a greater or lesser degree. And I think that's important because I realize, okay, that kind of prolonged stress, that's what it does to our body physically. But there's got to be some kind of correlation there in terms of when you have a church inhabiting these layers of stress for a long time, there's breakdown on the internal systems in the church too. On connection and relationship and just a sense of this just feels awkward at points and hard and now there's new tension points and I find myself showing up to church and I used to be able to get really jazzed and focused and now I like I space out after five minutes I can't listen to anything being said I feel like I'm going through the motions I don't want to talk to anybody after the service I don't even want to go to church sometimes I don't even have a reason why there's there's all kinds of fragmentation that happens within us and God through Paul says we have to understand that if one part of our collective body suffers we all suffer we're all going to carry it it will all affect us some way and we need to really be aware of this reality because, again, we might, depending on your temperament, you might lean into, and I'm speaking and preaching to myself here, it might be very tempting to lean into a narrative that says it's going to be bright and sunny and awesome and it's going to be better and we're just going to build over the next few months. And part of that might be true in some ways, but it's probably not going to happen at the speed and intensity with which we would like. One day... God willing, the sun is going to rise on a first morning in a free Ukraine. There's going to be a first morning where Ukraine is free. And the acute stressors of war and trauma will, will come to an end. There's not going to be any more shelling. There's not going to be any more bombs going off. There's not going to be any more war crimes. And on that first day, everybody in Ukraine is going to be hoping and anticipating that the sun's going to rise on new freedom and new possibilities and new hope. And it will. 
but it's also going to rise on a country that has shared a massive collective trauma. Trauma from the level of infrastructure, of buildings and roadways and farms, all the way to the hearts and minds and bodies of tiny children and babies. And on that morning, no one who really sees what has taken place will say, okay, so now we're going to kind of pivot back to normal. That it's not an appropriate response. When the sun comes up and you see now without the pressure around you, the scale of the devastation and what it's going to mean to rebuild moving forward. It's going to take a lot of patience, a lot of care, a lot of resiliency, and it's going to be long. It's going to be slow and it's going to be expensive. And although I don't want to compare in any way that situation to what, let's say, the North American church has experienced or our church has experienced, that is a picture that came to mind as I moved into the spring. I feel like the light is coming up on our community and I want to name for myself that this pandemic has been way more devastating to me personally than I was aware of when I was in it, in, in kind of the, the, the real storm of it. And I want to give you permission to say that too in your life. And I want to give us permission to acknowledge that maybe it's affected us collectively more than we would have liked or anticipated. So how do we rebuild in light of this kind of collective trauma? One of the affirmations that we have as a covenant church is that we as a church believe that what the church is is not a building, but it's a fellowship of believers. The church is a gathered community set apart to move into the world in Christ's mission. And the church is a communion. It's a fellowship of believers and it's characterized by participation with each other and in sharing new life together in Christ. And that's what that word community means. It comes from the root to commune. And that comes from the root of to have instances of shared experiences. Whenever you share something with someone, that's an act of communion. A communion, a community, is a place where we are learning to share with one another. Share ideas share a presence with each other, share a listening ear, share our values, we're sharing our goals, we're sharing our burdens with one another, our disappointments, we're sharing activities. And again, this doesn't have to mean uh, the, um, whatever in our mind's eye counts as big spiritual stuff. It, it, it can mean sharing a walk in silence. It can mean texting a friend and saying, hey, you're on my mind and heart. It can mean going out um, for lunch and talking about kind of like everything and nothing at the same time, and it's okay, and we're just connecting and breaking bread together. But I think it's going to be important for us to move into a much slower, intentional, patient, caring pattern of communion with each other. Part of what has made the stressor of the pandemic really challenging has been the breaking of uh, uh, in inputs of community. And the solution is not going to be, oh, force fellowship, let's go, we're launching home groups, and boom, 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 we're going to go sign up here. That actually won't work because people are overwhelmed. But it's going to start with little things. Reaching out to a friend, do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to have a coffee? Hey, I was going to go boating, do you want to come with me? Hey, could we 
Can I stop by the church for a few minutes and could we pray? Hey, I wanted to share this thing with you. Do you want to grab lunch? Maybe sticking around church for an extra two or three minutes and just connecting one or two people. How's it going? Little things. Little moments of little sharing. Little communion which can build. Rebuilding Ukraine is going to take one tiny tiny little bits and pieces at a time. It's not going to be fast. It's going to happen, but it's not going to be fast. And I think we have to understand that within our church as well. Within ourselves. And one of the things, and this is, I thought this is really fascinating that I learned. I'm going to end it here. I know I've been going long. Sorry. But um, one of the things that I learned is when you're in a place of chronic stress for a long time, the temptation is to think what I need the most right now is to like stop and undercut the stress completely and just rest. And by rest, I mean disengage from the maximal number of things possible. And they actually find this is really, really unhealthy and unhelpful with people whose physiological systems are ramped up from chronic stress. And one of the most important things that therapists do, whether it's therapists of the mind or body, is to try and move people out of prolonged stress slowly and de-stress slowly. Little moments of connection and communication and communion, but they do it slowly. And that's really important for a lot of us, that you need to pace yourself. And more so if your hand stayed up for two-stressor, three-stressor, four-stressor. You're not weak. There's nothing wrong with you. It's not that God's not actively involved in your life. You've been carrying a massive, massive load that's been probably difficult for even you to articulate. And you don't have to try and articulate it. I'm just giving you permission to say, this has been horrible and really heavy. And maybe even as I sit here listening, this, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to recover. I, I can't even summon the faith to imagine what life on the other side of that looks like. So pace yourself and nurture self-care slowly. You know, work on trying to get a little bit of a better sleep routine and eating well and move your body more and try and be outside more. Adopt or change or um, lean into spiritual practices practices that are working for you. Drop the ones that you're like, I know I should be doing this. Just drop those. Try something new. If you need ideas, talk to a friend, Rick, myself. Maybe it's a season to completely reorient how you move through your day. No problem. But what was uh, fascinating to me was not just the speed of slow that they recommend people moving out of stress to, but also they said, focus on doing activities that are actually stimulating and not just passively restful. So, Focus on activities that are actually interesting and stimulating to you and try to avoid just kind of vegging out. One psychologist said, aim to find active ways to manage your stress. Because inactive ways, binge watching TV, mindlessly scrolling and surfing the internet, even playing video games and zoning out, those provide a temporary reprieve from the stress. But once those stop, you sort of re-inhabit You haven't actually worked out the stress. And so finding ways to say, what really does help me come alive at the physical level, at the mental level, at the intellectual level, and emotional and and relational? And so I say this, and I place this in front of us today because I need to hear it. I think many of you need to hear it. 
And I want us to be sensitized to it, that we are a body. And if one part suffers, all of us suffers. But a lot of us during this last season have suffered. Like We're not like a body where it's like, pretty much healthy, we got a stub toe. As a body, we are limping out of the pandemic. And we need to understand that so that we can have the proper posture of care and support towards each other. And I know I speak to people, some of you who feel numb, maybe you feel dead, but I really honestly believe that if we together, not just as individuals, if we together learn little ways to follow Jesus together, we will actually discover the power of the risen Jesus and we will experience how He can take things that are numb and that are dead and can actually bring them back to life. Let's pray. God, I thank You for this body. I thank You for this church. And I thank You for the resiliency and the strength of this church, God. But sometimes that resiliency and that strength can tempt us into trying to project an image that is stronger than we actually are. And I'm at fault of that, God. Sometimes I feel as a leader I have to... I want to have it all together and I don't, God. And some of us, for the right reason, want to have it all together for ourselves or for You or for our spouses or for our kids and we don't. God, would You... Would you please help us? Would you help our community to learn in this next season in a deeper way how to love and care and be attentive to each other? Please teach us to care for one another, God. In Jesus' name, amen.